Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. 22-year-old Christian Cave is a student in the Environmental Studies Department at Kennesaw State University and on a mission to help us love and care about wildlife rather than fear it. Cave has hundreds of thousands of followers on social media where he consistently charms and educates his audience. When he recently found a rare pine snake in South Georgia, his excitement captured on camera resulted in a viral video. Later this hour, Christian Cave shares his warmth and enthusiasm for wildlife with City Light senior producer Kim Droves. Plus, speaking of art, our series of local visual artists in their own words features painter Amani Brooker. First, in 2018... Sister and brother Tamar Telehun and Simon Gebru opened the Atlanta restaurant Fidel Bistro. They wanted to celebrate their Ethiopian and Eritrean culture with food inspired by their mother's recipes. This year, the siblings updated their menu focusing entirely on vegan, vegetarian, and pescatarian options. They join me now via Zoom. Tamara and Simon, welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much for having us, Lois. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Now, the name of your restaurant is catchy. What's the meaning behind Fidel Bistro? Fidel Bistro is named after the word Fidel, which means alphabet in both Ethiopian and Eritrean language. But we spelled it with F-E-E versus F-I-D, just to make sure there was no confusion with Fidel Castro or Cuban food. Great. Would you tell us about growing up in Ethiopia, then immigrating to the U.S.? I'm going to let Simon answer this one since he does, you know, he makes me do all the talking often. So, 
Well, we were we were born and raised in Ethiopia to Eritrean parents. And when we decided to migrate to the U.S., Ethiopia was under the communist regime and life was difficult like any other Ethiopian or Eritrean at that time. At that time, Eritrea was also part of Ethiopia, but the communist regime and the communist system was not acceptable to a lot of us. So a lot of Ethiopian and Eritreans started to migrate to U.S. and Europe. So we are one of those people. Mm. Tamar, I'm curious about how your mother's recipes and cooking influenced you as a chef. How are her recipes represented in Fidel Bistro's menu? Well, I love the fact that you think that I'm a chef, so I'm going to take that and run with it. (laughs) But the truth is we are not chefs. We are not trained chefs at all. I think mom's cooking played a big role in our upbringing anyway. Mom was the glue, the tape, the stapler, that everything that held everyone together, not just in our family, but in distant families as well. And she cooked food with love and she healed you with kind words, love and the way she cooked. So although we are not trained chefs, we both know how to cook very well. And we took some of, or the majority of the inspiration from her cooking style and twisted some of them to our own. Uh, But the majority of the cooking is obviously in honor of her and, and how she cooked, which was always a lot more flavorful than it is of heat and spice or spicy levels. So she is just one of those mothers that always cooked amazing food all the time. And so we, as we are creating the menu, and she played a big part in creating the menu, we made sure that we brought the traditional things that are very authentic. But then a couple of dishes, Simon and I would, you know, compete and exchange um, ideas and come up with different different menus and different ingredients to incorporate into the new lo- the new world, I guess you could say. For those who've never tried Ethiopian or Eritrean dishes, how would you describe them? Well, I'll take that question. The food that we eat in Ethiopia and Eritrea, uh, I can say predominantly, is kind of unique compared to a lot of um, sub-Saharan African countries. A lot of sub-Saharan African countries consume rice and, you know, that's part of their food. We do not eat rice at all. We have our own bread that is made of, currently here is called an ancient grain, it's called teff. And usually that's a staple food and that's a very um, labor intensive bread. Uh, usually the teff flour is mixed and fermented for three days, traditionally, uh, three to four days, and it will be baked. So that would be the one that we eat usually. And uh, once it's fermented, it's very, very easy to digest it. Here in the U.S., the bakers don't have time to do it three days. It went through a lot of experiment to even get it to what we have now. But currently they do about a 24-hour fermentation. So that's a basic, the staple one that that's a bread. The other one is the sauce. The sauce is divided into, let's say, two, the vegan part and the non-vegan part. We have a lot of non-vegan meat, you know, goat, lamb, chicken, and beef. These are the most dominant protein that we do. 
but the vegan is also i can say inspired maybe by the orthodox church there is a lot of fasting or lent within the orthodox church and most of the time i can say about most of our parents half of the year they are vegan so because of that there's a lot of vegan dishes that are available and we do not even touch one percent of the food what they you know it's just a lot because of the practice that they have. They have developed very interesting vegan foods and very flavorful. So I should say we are the only one eating it in that form and shape in terms of the, the bread and the sauce. And we use our hand. We don't use fork at all. We, you know, you have to wash your hand and just eat it by using the piece of bread and drop it on, on the sauce and roll it and it will come out okay. That's that's a traditional way of our food. That's how it's eaten. Yeah. Are there any big differences between Ethiopian and Eritrean dishes? I would say there are differences, and they're not. I, I you know when we talk about Ethiopian dishes, we're talking about the the dish that made it to the mainstream in Ethiopia and Eritrea. Ethiopia is very large country, about 120 million people, about 80 different ethnic groups. So the further you go out from the capital city or from the big cities, there are a lot of variety of foods. Let's say probably I haven't eaten them and uh, probably the same thing in Eritrea. Eritrea is uh, small, about five to six million, about nine ethnic group. But there is a common dish that literally everybody eats. This is what we have. But on those grounds, we are very similar on those common ground. But would there be any food and different ethnic groups that are not consumed in Eritrea, even in Ethiopia, or let's say there may be a thousand food from Ethiopia that is not consumed in the North, but most likely the one that is the Northern food, I should say, or that made it to the mainstream is consumed by literally almost everybody, I should say. But yes, they we have a lot of in common, but we have a lot of differences. You know, in terms of spice, Ethiopians food is a little bit more spicier, more flavorful. Uh, we have a little bit uh, milder, but it's there. It's there. There are some foods that they eat more than us, you know, so same, but a little bit different. I would say we probably use a little bit more tomato sauce than they do. And I think it's a residue from being colonized by Italians for 50 years in Eritrea. Um, and Ethiopia was not colonized. So some of the the things that the you know Italians left us were architecture, you know, railroads and tomatoes. <laughs> so I think we we might be utis, utilizing tomatoes and the sauce a lot more as we also make a lot more homemade, you know, spaghetti sauce. So I would say that partly might have like a small portion in, in difference. Well, looking at your menu is a visual feast to the colors of the foods and the textures, the way you present them are just beautiful. What made you decide to refocus the menu this year to exclusively vegan, vegetarian, and pescatarian? Honestly, it really was something that we've talked about probably a year ago. Simon mentioned it as our vegan department has done so much more in numbers and, and, and popularity. But I think the second part that played the role was definitely pricing. Um, we've always purchased high quality meat. And we started to notice after COVID, 
prices had just skyrocketed. And in order for us to sustain what we would want in profit margin and also the quality of the meat that we provided to our customers, we would have to go extremely high in pricing it for the customers. And we just didn't think it was affordable for people. It would be fair for people. And just looking at all of it from different direction, we don't know when it's going to get better. You know, there are some things that we purchased for a certain amount and there were four times as much now after COVID. So it was just a business decision from a perspective of A, we do like the concept of, you know, making fresh food, clean food, healthier food, and keeping the spices and, and, and our ingredients exactly the same without really sacrificing to the quality of the food. And instead of concentrating on the me side that just really we can't figure out pricing for, it's better if we concentrate on the vegan, vegetarian, and pescatarian department. And it's been a success so far. So we'll just keep pushing. Well, and all philosophy, tastes aside, everything we read about helping to save the planet points to more plant-based food. You're influencers in this way. Yes, I think that's where this generation especially is traveling towards. And I don't think it's a trend. You know, I think although for a lot of different countries outside of the States, um, might have been a normal practice anyway, um, as part of their tradition or culture. For the Western world, it's been the last 10, 15 years, maybe 20 years that the veganism and plant-based starting to travel and creep very slowly. But um, for most countries, it's been something that they've been practicing anyway. So now to see everybody catch up to each other is, is a great thing to, to watch. And I'm not vegan. I'm not vegetarian. I can probably give up meat, but seafood is probably going to be a, a battle for me. That I find myself eating a lot more plant-based stuff now that the restaurant has been converted than I did before. So it's a personal gain as well. <laughs> And I think uh, the good thing about it is that we don't have to reinvent anything because we have vegan food is very, very common in both Eritrea and Ethiopia. And there's a lot of selection. We just have to pick which vegan food we wanted to include in our restaurant. In terms of flavor, whether you order protein-based or, or vegan, the, the spices are almost the same. So here in the U.S., you know, there are a lot of vegan restaurants. Vegan and vegan food is a little bit boring. It could be boring and people have to be creative. We don't have to create much because we've been eating this vegan food for years. In fact, in any typical family, let's say in our family, my mom will be fasting and we'll be, we'll be forced to eat vegan food on those, on those days or months that, that she's fasting. And this is very common in both countries. Each family Either they will go totally vegan or sometimes, you know, kids will say like, oh, we want, you know, protein based and the parents will just make it for them. But we don't have to invent anything. We have a lot of vegan foods uh, or dishes that we can incorporate in our uh, restaurant is uh, the question is, you know, is it feasible for us to do this dish versus this? But yeah. Well, there is certainly nothing bland about the dishes on your menu. Would you talk about a few, starting with one of my favorites, the fool? Yes. 
Fold is a fava beans base. And, and I think, you know, a lot of countries also make fold, but everybody has their version. I know that Turkish have it, Persians have it, Sudanese have it, which I believe is the origination is in Sudan. You know, and a lot of Ethiopian Eritrean residents, I'm sure people will cook it and it's, it's different. This is our version, which has been extremely popular. And I grew up eating it like breakfast, but I realized that it's just it's such a, a flavorful dish that contains so much protein and iron that it actually could be eaten as an appetizer or as a meal. So it, it's been a popular dish. It's a popular dish to share at our restaurant. Usually people would come as a group and that's one of the main things that they would order to share um, next to the hummus. And it's white beans, garlic, and what else? And cumin. Cumin. Delicious. Yeah. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitz, speaking with the co-owners of Fidel Bistro, siblings Tamar Telehun and Simon Gebru. Simon, <laughs> when you were talking about spices, which spices are integral to Ethiopian dishes? Boy, there are a lot of them. You know, we have two, the, the spices are divided into two sections, a red sauce spice and a white sauce uh, spice. The interesting part is they all mix it, so we only have one thing to worry. So if it's a red sauce, we just use one red sauce because there are about seven or eight spices. Uh, the same thing with the white sauce. So it's already pre-mixed, that's what they do. And we just only do one drop versus here in the U.S., you know, when, when chefs or whatever cook, they have different spices and they just drop, drop, drop. No, we only do one drop. <laughs> oh. But it's a lot. I think tomorrow tomorrow is better to speak about the details about the spices versus me. I'm not good about it. But uh, since we don't make it, you know, usually my mom does all the uh, the spice mixes. But, there, yeah, she does all. And again, you know, literally... It's almost the same uh, in both countries. Each family do it, but everybody has a little bit twist in their flavor. So it comes in a little bit different. Or maybe one will put one one uh, spice a little more than the other. But yeah, it's pretty mixed. It's pretty mixed, but it's there's several ways of making it. But I think there is a certain rule that everybody kind of follows in most cases, at least. But, you know, they have dry garlic and ginger powder, they'll have cumin, they'll have cardamom, they'll have African black cardamom, the Burberry spice, which is, I think, one of the number one ingredients into the Ethiopian Eritrean way of cooking, is once everything is blended, you're seeing a red chili powder, you know, item. But the stuff that they actually put in it is the African black cardamom. They'll put the ginger, garlic, cumin, like paprika, there's just a ton of items that everybody puts in to make it into this one spice, which ends up being the main ingredient. So then you're not using all these other spices to make one spice. So it's already done for you. The restaurant business is challenging without a pandemic hitting. Uh -huh. What challenges have you faced and overcome? in these past four years? Oh, goodness. Where do we start? 
this is a reoccurring conversation amongst our friends that have restaurants or bars or lounges. And it has been difficult. It is, I mean, it, you know, Sama and I have a saying, the feeling is not an option. So we're going to keep changing, improving, switching, doing whatever we have to do to, to continue pushing forward. But it's definitely, definitely kicking our behind. That's for sure. I mean, you're going from, you know, everything being closed down to doing to goes only, you know, after the pandemic, when we, when the city opened back up, we started just doing to goes. And then from to goes, it was partially opened. So we had all these spaces that we had to create for people. So they're not near each other. So you're already losing. So if you were sitting 50 people, now maybe you're sitting 25 people, if that, because you've created a space between them. Staffing is a big problem. A lot of people either have moved away from the careers that they chose and they had before the pandemic to they're receiving money otherwise. So they're not back to work. So staffing is a major issue. Then it fully opened. And then we were still kind of thinking, how do we fully open it when we don't have as much staff, especially in the front of the house? And so I was, I mean, and I'm still fully involved in serving at times. And, you know, I've, I grew up not thinking any job was beneath me. So I have no problem as an owner to, you know, wash my hands and serve or wash my hands and cook. So one thing I do know is that thank God Simon and I have trained to do every position in our business, because if we didn't, we probably would have closed the restaurant a lot. Uh, prices have gone tremendously higher on everything. And I mean, everything. So it's retraining your brain that what you paid $60 for something is now 190. <laughs> so it is almost unreal. It's almost, almost unreal. And, and I think I think also we haven't recovered. I should I should say because you know currently at the restaurant we we open in a, uh, we open on a, uh, at eleven o'clock like Friday and Saturday and Sunday, but Monday we're closed. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday we open at four. Even though we wanted to open for lunch, we don't have a manpower. So, uh, but our cost is the same. So it's very very. Not we're not. I mean, the restaurants are not in a good position. And let's say if you do heavy advertisement, but you cannot open your door or you cannot serve as fast as you want, you're like in a bad position because if you spend a lot of money, you cannot serve people. You don't have manpower. So me and tomorrow we are forced to work in different position. In the kitchen, we we can work in every position from dishing, uh, dishwashing to cooking, prepping. We can do all that. So good thing is we know how to do it. But that's not what we signed in as an owner to work with the back of the house or the front. We're supposed to train people and manage it, but it's very difficult. So when you think you already have enough stuff, then you lose two or three, then you go back again. So it's it's just going around and around. Yeah, that's a very tough time. It's a good thing that we have the passion to not leave it in such a negative thought that we enjoy serving people and giving them the experience that we had eating with our mom. Uh, people often say they feel like they're at mom's kitchen eating our food. And, you know, no one goes into, I think the majority of the people that own restaurants can agree with me that you don't go into the restaurant industry trying to be multimillionaire. You do the restaurant thing because you have this passion and this fire for serving people and giving them experience they might not get somewhere else. Most people don't have to go and eat. 
even if their cooking is not up to par, they can sustain, you know, without going and eating. They go out for experience. And our main focus is making sure that every person that walks in the door walks out saying the service was great and the food was great and the ambience was great. And, you know, that keeps you going even during the hard times that you go, okay, that guy just came in and just blessed me with his thoughts and how much he enjoyed this moment. And that was good enough for me to take me for another day. Siblings Tamar Telehun and Simon Gebru, owners of Fidel Bistro. More information about the Ethiopian and Eritrean restaurant is on our website, wabe.org slash city lights. In a moment, our series of local visual artists in their own words, speaking of art, Featuring painter Amani Brooker, amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. It's time now for our series, Speaking of Art, where we hear from local visual artists in their own words. Hi, my name is Imani Brooker, and I'm a painter. I primarily use gouache and acrylic gouache on paper. I'm working on a series now called Holding Space. My subject matter is uh, human portraits, and I depict them as floating heads. And I find that in doing floating heads, it's already giving the viewer that sense of just focusing on the mind. What's really fun and different about these portraits is that within the the shadows and the cast shadows of the face, I paint landscapes within them. And these landscapes usually uh, have a sun or a moon that adds as another symbolic point of focus uh, for meditation. So I'm an only child and an army brat, so I've had tons and tons of free time to myself growing up. I've been drawing for a long time and my parents uh, took notice of that pretty early on. And so I've been in extracurricular art classes since middle school. As a 90s baby, literally born in 1990, I got to experience the golden age of Disney and anime. And then soon after I got into comics and video games 
And so I'm still inspired by all of that imagery and the stories. It's cool. So at first, SCAD's sequential art program in Atlanta brought me here. What kept me were the people. And through SCAD Atlanta, I got to see a lot of the art scene throughout the city. There's just this, this vibe, this, this down-to-earth, honest, unapologetic, bright, creative vibe <laughs> that I really haven't felt anywhere else that I've lived. If you have not been to Peter Street Station in Castleberry Hill, you need to go. That's a 333 Peter Street Station. It's so much fun. Not only do they have a curated show um, all year round in their hidden gallery, they also just have a beautiful community. All the artists um, really put in the time and effort to have fun nights just about every night of the week. So every time I go, there's something different. It might be live music. It might be open mic. Um, they might be doing a film showing, life drawing, you know, just you never know. If you're interested in following me in my art journey and seeing the finished works of Holding Space, uh, you can follow me on Instagram at Amani Brooker Art. That's A, M as in Mary, A, N as in Nancy, I, B as in boy, R, O, O, K, E, R, A, R, T. I also have a website if you just want to see my portfolio, amanibrookerart.myportfolio.com. Thank you so much for having me. Painter Amani Brooker and our series Speaking of Art. More information about Brooker's work is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Soul jazz vocalist Rhonda Thomas and saxophonist Jeff Sparks are performing at the Old Fourth Ward Holiday Concert tomorrow evening. Thomas is celebrating the 10th anniversary of her Christmas CD, Little Drummer Girl. It focuses on giving. During the Christmas holiday, we get so focused on commercialism and, you know, what are you going to get me? You get bogged down with, oh, my gosh, I have to write this list and, and get all these gifts. And people won't think I love them if I don't buy something for them. But your gift can be as basic as what you do for others, your service. You could be a teacher, a chef, a veterinarian or a singer. In any of these, you are blessed to give service. And I get to be the little drummer girl every single time I'm performing because I get to give the gift of song. And that's a blessing to me. Listeners will recognize classic holiday songs from Thomas's album with a unique twist. So one of my favorite songs on the little drummer girl album is my song, we Three Kings. Now, of course, you're familiar with the original We Three Kings, but remember I told you I like different genres of music? So our spin on this one is that it has a Latin jazz vibe. You cannot go wrong with Latin jazz. You're gonna feel good. So take a listen to We Three Kings. ¶¶ 
addition to Thomas's songs, she and Sparks are performing music by Stevie Wonder, Donny Hathaway, Lala Hathaway, and Nat King Cole. The performance is tomorrow, December 2nd at 8 p.m. in the Howard Middle School Auditorium. More information and tickets are available at rondatomaschristmas.bpt.me. Coming up, wildlife enthusiast Christian Cave joins us with details on his recent spotting of a rare Georgia pine snake. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Brightsis. Thank you for being here. 22-year-old Christian Cave has been fascinated with wildlife since he was a kid. He's a student in the Environmental Studies Department at Kennesaw State University and on a mission to help us love and care about wildlife rather than fear it. Peek at his social media pages where he has hundreds of thousands of followers and you'll see Cave consistently charm and educate his audience. Recently, he found a rare pine snake in South Georgia, and his excitement was captured on camera, resulting in a viral video. City Light senior producer Kim Drobes caught up with the wildlife enthusiast, and he began by explaining why pine snakes are seldom spotted in Georgia. Well, you know, pine snakes are some of the most fascinating snakes I'd say we have in the southeastern United States in that they spend a large percentage of their life underground. Uh, they're highly fossorial. They even have a, a modified scale at the front of their snout called a rostral scale that enables them to dig. So um, they spend a lot of time just underground in gopher tortoise dens and pocket gopher burrows where they'll spend most of their uh, summer months escaping the heat and hunting all types of rodents. But then in the winter months, they, of course, spend their time underground to stay away from the freezing temperatures up top. So um, in the fall time, when it's not too hot but not too cold, you start to see a lot more activity of these snakes, as well as, like, I believe the babies hatch. And so you have a good chance of seeing babies on the surface as well as the adults. And it still is pretty hard to find them. I mean, you're basically just looking for sand tracks in the uh, in the sand because it's a pretty heavy-bodied snake, especially when they're larger. So you can kind of find them that way. But other than that, you know, you're just hoping to be lucky enough that you just happen to see one exiting a burrow or out on the hunt for some prey. And I I just uh, I woke up at 4 a.m. and I dragged a good friend of mine, Bobby Harden Jr., down to South Georgia with me. And we had been doing that for the past like three weeks in a row, trying to find these snakes with no luck. And so we get up at 4 a.m. We get down there right around sunrise when we needed to get there. And we're just cruising up and down this dirt road and uh, we're not seeing anything. And then sure enough, the sun disappears, cloud coverage comes in and it gets windy and wind 
for anybody who's interested out there, if you're interested in looking for snakes, wind is usually not your friend. They don't like it very much. So now it's getting cooler and it's getting windy. And I'm like, oh man, like we're not going to find this snake. And I woke my friend up at like 4 a.m. And I took a whole thing of gas <laughs> down here, you know, just basically thinking, oh, you know, let's call it a day. And sure enough, just as I'm looking over my shoulder to tell him, hey man, like, you know, thanks for uh, getting up and following me down here. I just see an elongated body through his mirror or his window rather flash by really quickly. And I swerve the car over on this dirt road. He's like, <laughs> what, what, what? I'm like, start filming, start filming. Because I, I thought I knew what it was because there's not many snakes down there that get that thick body and that large. But, I, you know, it was just I'd never seen one of those snakes. It was a snake that I've been looking for since I was like eight years old. So the possibility of that, like in my mind, that oh my gosh, this could be my first ever pine snake was just crazy to me. I uh, got around the front of the car and I saw it and Bobby was already filming and you get the very manic and <laughs> excited <laughs> energy that I had in that video. And yeah, it, it was definitely something I'll never forget. Oh my gosh, this is such a beauty. Look at the coloration, an absolute stunner. It was such a moment to be caught on camera. How did the snake react to your incredible enthusiasm? <laughs> well, as you can imagine, he probably thought his life was going to be over uh, pretty quickly. He's like, man, I spent most of my life underground. And sure enough, the minute I come up top, this guy finds me. But um, surprisingly enough, since it was so cool and cold, he actually somewhat enjoyed the body heat that I was giving off. Snakes are, of course, ectotherms, so they can't control their uh, internal temperature. They have to, you know, rely on the environment like the sun and warm rocks and different things like that. So this snake felt my body heat. And while it was a little defensive, like kind of, you know, trying to get away as a snake should, after a while, it actually started to calm down quite nicely. And it went like down my shirt and wrapped around <laughs> my neck for like 10 minutes, you know, it was just sitting around my neck, absorbing my body heat until the sun came back out and then we released it. But yeah, it didn't bite. Um, pine snakes especially are known for having a very loud hiss that they'll use to uh, scare off predators. And it didn't hiss once, it didn't strike once. So I was pretty lucky. It was kind of a win-win for both of us, I guess. Such a beautiful snake. Works through the sand like nobody's business. Oh, wow. It's such a sad sight to see it go, but an amazing one to know that snakes this big and this healthy are still out here ripping it up, doing a great job regulating all types of rodents in our ecosystem. And have a great day, sweetheart. Keep growing, stay safe. One of the best days of my life. Well, that video solicited remarks that compared you to Steve Irwin, the crocodile hunter. And well, I was yeah. wondering how that made you feel. Oh, goodness. Uh, where do I even begin? Steve Irwin was my inspiration and still is my inspiration. And he's just my hero growing up. I mean, I directly got involved in just studying wildlife. The reason why I'm an environmental science student, all of these things growing up, it was directly from Steve Irwin. I mean, I grew up just watching him on the television and he just had a way of capturing an audience and bringing you along with him to the most remote parts of the entire world to learn about some of the most dangerous and, and wild animals you could ever dream of. And so to see people online comparing me to my hero, uh, it just seems like an incredible honor that I do not deserve, but I just look at it as a big responsibility. And if I can even touch one hundredth of the people that he's touched in the way that he touched me with wildlife, then I'd be, I'd consider myself pretty successful. 
Well, you seem like a natural teacher and performer. What were you like as a kid? Were you digging around in the yard? <laughs> yeah, I was I was giving my mom uh, a lot of headaches uh, growing up. Uh, from what my parents tell me, I was always just uh, crawling around outside. And I always had an emptied out mayonnaise jar with holes drilled in the lid for whatever <laughs> creepy crawlies. I could find in the yard and when I'd find an insect, I'd run to my dad, 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 what is this? What is this? And he'd go online with me and look up what it is and tell me if I could keep it or not. And that's (laughs) how I grew up, just being very fascinated. Uh, I kept a lot of freshwater fish as a kid and those pursuits uh, got me interested in the sciences, I guess you could say. And um, I just liked on my own volition, researching different animals and knowing about stuff. And then when I would go to school or recess, uh, there would be, you know, a creepy spider walking down the middle of the slide and all the kids were scared to slide down and I'd run over and go, no, this is just Phidippus audax, the bull jumping spider. <laughs> you know, I, I read about this and I'd save the day. And so that guarded me the name Bugman in uh, elementary school and whatnot. Teachers would, you know, always tell me if there was a creepy insect crawling around or something. And I, I hear from my friends and people now, they're always like, dude, we always knew you were going to end up like this. Like, you <laughs> you know, wherever you were, you were trying to catch whatever snake or turtle or bug or something that was crawling or you were bringing your praying mantises to class for show and tell or just doing you know just always was doing something wildlife related so I guess you could say yeah I grew up pretty similar to how I am now for sure (laughs) so tell me about your team that makes up the caveman wildlife crew actually uh so I started off uh needing people to I guess film my work and I was lucky enough to have uh close friends at the time and, and pretty much anybody who's my friend today is film me catching a snake or a turtle at least once um, <laughs> because you know we'll, we'll be out just hiking in the woods or whatnot and chatting and all of a sudden I'm like oh, oh black racer you know and they already know okay it's time to get the camera time to educate some people but um that's kind of how this the crew worked it was just uh, a lot of my close friends traveling along with me uh pushing me to get out of my comfort zone a bit by having just camaraderie and exploring new wildlife areas and whatnot and uh, I now do everything uh, more solo, just as things started to progress and opportunities got bigger. I just realized, you know, uh, they were going different places in life. But, you know, they, they, also, they still support me. And I'm lucky to have a, a lot of close friends by me that I consider my brothers today, for sure. Uh, I've, I've been just blessed to have people around me that I've had. Well, that's fantastic. And I mean, you guys are all still college students. So it's very natural that someone who was into marketing and would like to help you with a camera might move on to something else. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, have you decided what you would like to do after college? Oh, so uh, yeah, I'm going to Kennesaw State right now for environmental science. And I'm hoping that my environmental science degree will give me the credibility I need to not only further my educational pursuits in reaching people with wildlife, but also so that I can really do some real conservation work and good, you know, um, I got the opportunity just through my social media platform to work with some amazing people in the Orient Society. They're a herpetological conservation group, and they work to protect all types of different species, but one in particular, the eastern indigo snake uh, here in Georgia. And just working alongside those experts made me realize just how important it is to, you know, get my degree, and then I'll be able to do some real good work for conservation like they're doing. And I'd like to do something along those lines when I finish school, uh, do some hands-on boots on the ground conservation projects with various species of reptiles and amphibians in the Southeast. Also too, uh, this, this social media thing, it's kind of opened doors and opportunities that I just never could have imagined. 
And uh, I guess I'll just say that I'm very open-minded to wherever caveman wildlife takes me. Educational, entertainment, pursuit area, if that makes sense. It makes perfect sense. So as of right now, what else makes up your dream list of reptiles that you could see in Georgia that you haven't had a chance to yet? I haven't seen, I consider the king of all rattlesnakes, the Eastern diamondback rattlesnake, uh, Crotalus mm-hmm. adamantes. It uh, stays more down in the lower Piedmont, but really the coastal plains and farther lower into Florida of Georgia. And uh, I haven't um, gotten to see one yet. I, I spent the whole uh, month of October uh, driving down every weekend, spending countless hours in South Georgia looking for them, and I still have not found one. Um, so I'm sure the enthusiasm and the energy will be insane. The minute I see one of those, I mean, they're the largest rattlesnake we have in North America. They're absolutely huge, just massive snakes. And oh gosh, just such an impressive animal. So that's a very, uh, exciting moment. Um, checked off a lot of boxes this year. I've gotten extremely, extremely fortunate to have seen, uh, a lot of these animals, uh, this summer, just spending a lot of time out in the wilderness and the habitat and get coming across them. That's fantastic. Well, I was looking through your social media and a lot of the animals that you find, it seems to be obviously outside of the city proper, where, (laughs) you know, more reptiles tend to be. I think that's probably a good thing. But one of your videos was about an insect that I actually have seen in Piedmont Park. And I wanted to talk to you about your video about the Bruner stick mantis. Oh, wow. You've seen that in Piedmont Park? I did. I got a photo of it a few years ago. It was a little nutty. And when I saw your video, I was like, oh my gosh, that's that's what I saw. That is insane. Wow. That is so no cool. Doubt. No doubt. So tell our listeners about the stick mantis. Okay. So uh, I'm a big praying mantis fanatic, first of all, growing up. So that was like my, one of my, my favorite. There's still, whenever people ask me my favorite animal, I always say the praying mantis. There's so many different species. Um, but nonetheless, the Brunner stick mantis, Bruneria borealis, is this gorgeous fluorescent green what would you say, like green bean stringy looking mantis? Like very, it's yes. very, like very long, but like a large, but very grass like mantis that is in the uh, southeastern United States. And I believe even a little bit more out west. But nonetheless, these praying mantises are very interesting for a multitude of reasons. Like, first of all, you know, praying mantises are the only insects that can turn their head 180 degrees. So Whoa. they can move their heads like us. You know, I'm sure you've maybe seen videos of praying mantises, they'll look over their shoulder. Or, or snap, snap around real quick and look at you right in your face. And you're like, whoa, like, you know, a beetle can't do that or a spider. And uh, it makes them very uh, great uh, site-based predators. But nonetheless, what's so really unique, or I think one of the most unique things about the Brunner stick mantis is that they're all females. There's no males in that entire species that we've ever found. We've never found a male. They were reproduced through an asexual process called parthenogenesis. And so essentially, to have a mantis that's out there making clones of itself like they're just cloning themselves through each uh, egg sac that they lay whereas most mantises need a male and a female to connect and then uh, you have hundreds of babies coming out of this egg sac called an uthica the uh, brunner stick mantis can produce its own uthica and they do hatch out a good bit less baby mantises than a regular species i guess you could say might but nonetheless you still have about 90 something probably praying mantises coming out of an ooth that was just laid by a female with no interactions with another uh, counterpart, which is very fascinating. 
That is so wild. And you taught me that. I would not have known that had I not watched your video. The idea that they are all female clones is mind-blowing and fantastic. <laughs> it is. It is. It really is. I, I, a lot of people liked that video as well. They were like, you know, who would have thought, you know, you see this. And, and a lot of people had seen them. It was kind of cool to see a lot of people like, oh, my gosh, I've seen I've seen one of those. You know, I, just, I, I thought it was a mantis, but it looked kind of weird. You know, I didn't know what that was. I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's so cool. Well, I wanted to end on one other video of yours that I just found so heartwarming. You were at a body of water and there was a bunch of teens on the other side of the body of water and they got to watch you find a snake and they were seemingly very afraid of the snake and through the course of the video you get to see them warm up to it and watching you be able to educate those kids that was really cool. What did that feel like? Well, first off, that was a great capture by a good friend of mine, Micaiah. He was one of the guys who I told you was formerly uh, in the crew. And he spent a lot of time just going out with me, documenting uh, me catching stuff and talking about it. And I was at this park and it was a warm summer day and we knew, you know, people were around, but we would always laugh to each other that so many people would be at these state parks and had no idea how close they were to these snakes. Uh, There's like water snakes all over the place using the same rocks that people were enjoying to swim around and whatnot and, you know, uh, sunbathe on. And I I went up, I kind of, you know, I, I love this stuff. So I, I kind of didn't realize that these people um, were watching, like watching me, like kind of like, because nobody else is really out there in the rapids like my friend and I were. So they're already kind of watching, like, what the heck are these guys doing out there? And they didn't realize that I was going in uh, to catch this like three and a half foot long water snake. And so when I jumped down and I, I looked like I fell in the water to them and I actually heard a couple of them laugh. Like they were like, Oh, look at that guy. He fell. And then I came up with this big snake and they all started screaming and uh, they were uh, pretty shocked at first. Uh, of course, as you could probably see from that video, but I just uh, was trying to like uh, across these rapids and yelling. I'm like, Oh, no, 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 you don't understand. I'm completely fine. I'm completely fine. This snake's biting me because it has no. <laughs> and they're, they're like, oh, like every time it like struck at me and I'm doing my whole Steve Irwin bit, you know, dodging the snake and it finally tagged me on my wrist. And they're like, oh my God, like, you know, you got bit. And I'm like, no, 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 I'm completely fine. I'm completely, it's like chewing on me. And I'm like, I'm completely fine. Like, I'm completely fine. Like it's non-venomous, completely harmless, a species of car. And so finally um, I go, hey, like uh, I can bring it across and you can see it. And they're like, no way, like stay over there. And uh, finally one of them was like, uh, one of the young ladies, she was like, well, I kind of want to see it. I don't know. It's kind of cool. I want to see it. And I was like, okay, yeah, here. I was like, all you can just take a step back and I'll bring it over. And then whoever wants to come close to me can, uh, you know, can see the snake. Cause I I'm very aware that, you know, snakes can be a very big uh, phobia for people. So, you know, I never want to, despite how much I love them, I never want to just go, oh, here you go, like toss a snake at someone, you know, and freak them out. <laughs> and so uh, nonetheless, I, uh, <laughs> I I got them, I got a couple of the more braver uh, people in the group to come up and just look at it at first. And then when they just saw how calm the snake was now, because once again, it was all cold from the water and now it's feeling my warm hands and it's kind of like, all right, this is tolerable. And, and so it's kind of mm -hmm. sitting in my arms now and calmed down. They, one by one, one of them would kind of put one finger on the snake, then two fingers, then kind of hold the bottom part of its body. And that just kind of brought out the courage as it usually does in the rest of the group. Like, oh, okay, this guy's crazy, but he's not, he's not going to let us get bitten, you know? And so um, just everybody just started kind of coming up and touching the snake. And I got to do a little bit of an educational piece on them and tell them that these guys are very common. It was a, a northern water snake, Nerdy Isipidon. They're very common around bodies of water in the southeast. And uh, 
they get killed a lot because people think they're venomous uh, cotton mouths or water moccasins, but oh, they, wow. they really aren't. And they're very essential to maintaining freshwater ecosystems. They eat all types of sick fish, regulate healthy fish populations and frogs and different things like that. And so uh, it was just a really great moment to get to share that with uh, those young people. And I, I could tell they were, they definitely still weren't, you know, snake enthusiasts after that, but they definitely, I, I got to flip that narrative around. Maybe that snakes are just out there to, harm people and whatnot for them and then they got to watch me let it go and they were like oh wow i can swim really well and i was kind of explaining that's why they get the name water snake and whatnot so it was a really great moment and i'm glad my friend caught that on film i i didn't realize he was filming the whole time he just thought it was funny that they were all screaming but (laughs) it was a wonderfully heartwarming moment to be able to watch you actually change people's mind perhaps a little bit about a snake thank you thank you 22-year-old wildlife enthusiast Christian Cave speaking with City Light senior producer Kim Drobes. More information about Cave is on our website, wabe.org. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture, Tomorrow at 11 a.m., we go behind the scenes of Cirque du Soleil with artistic director Rachel Lancaster and one of the performers, Sophie Gay. City Light senior producer is Kim Droves. Our producers are Summer Evans and Janine Etter, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. Do connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on both Facebook and Instagram. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org donate and become a member right now. And thank you.